Hey, it's Anita and this is Bitcoin and Co. Hello girls and boys, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 79 of the Bitcoin and Co. podcast. My guest today is Nick Carter. I wanted to have him on the show for a long time. He's a Bitcoiner with a financial and philosophical background. He's thoughtful and interesting to talk to, as you will see. Nick is a general partner at Castle Island Ventures and the co-founder and current chairman of Coinmetrics. He's also hosting the On The Brink podcast alongside Matt Walsh. We touch on some of his favorite topics like Bitcoin metaphysics, crypto dollarization, historical references to free banking and the future of privacy and surveillance in the digital era. Nick is also talking about the history behind the US-centric world of financial regulations. If you are interested in this topic and how these measures affect less powerful nations around the globe, watch out for next week's episode with crypto lawyer Zachary Kelman, where we dive into the global network of financial surveillance and regulations and how cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin might disrupt the power hegemony of the US and the Western world. If you have a question, send me an email to hello at anitaposch.com, that's posh with a C between S and H. Or you can also visit anita.link forward slash 79, where you will find an audio recorder to send me a message. Also, you can find the show notes of this conversation on this page. And now a word from my sponsors and then enjoy the conversation. Shift Crypto and the Bitbox O2 Hardware Wallet. I did an interview with the inventor of the Bitbox and co-founder of Shift Crypto, Douglas Bakum, recently. It's episode number 77. Tune in to hear about his intentions and the core values behind the production of the hardware wallet. To be financially independent, it's important to hold your own keys. Shift cares about making it easy for you to keep your Bitcoin safe. The Bitbox is Swiss-made and makes it simple to store and use your coins. I especially like that they have a Bitcoin-only edition too. And I can use the hardware wallet with my phone. Check out the Bitbox O2 at anita.link forward slash Bitbox02. You will get a 10% discount if you use the code ANITA in the checkout. Local Bitcoins is one of the most trusted and the largest peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin trading platforms in the world. On Local Bitcoins, you can buy and sell your Bitcoin in an easy, fast and secure way, always protected by escrow. Local Bitcoins allows you to trade directly with people like you. And you can choose any currency you prefer and find a safe payment method to complete your trade. Local Bitcoins also offers a web wallet, so you can trade and deposit and send out your Bitcoin all in one account. Go to www.localbitcoins.com to buy and sell Bitcoin. Not your keys, not your coins is one of the basic rules in Bitcoin. Therefore, I definitely recommend using a hardware wallet to store your Bitcoin. But... If you have difficulties with the technical requirements and constant maintenance of hardware wallets, you can use the card wallet. The card wallet is a very simple and secure solution for long-term storage of Bitcoin and Ethereum. No software updates needed and it leaves no traces on the blockchain, which is good for your privacy. You can give it away as a gift or inheritance. You send Bitcoin to it and all you have to do is to store it in a safe place. The manufacturers are the Austrian State Printing House and Coinfinity, Austria's first Bitcoin broker, founded in 2014. Order your card wallet at cardwallet.com forward slash Anita and get 20% off. And finally, a shout out to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, where you can find other Bitcoin-related podcasts like Proof of Love, Bitcoin Audible, POV Crypto and more. Hello, Nick. Great pleasure to have you on the show. 
Thank you, Anita. I'm a, I'm a fan of your show, and so it's a privilege to finally appear on it. Ah, thanks very much. I also appreciate your work and am a regular listener of your podcast. So uh, maybe some of our listeners don't know who you are. Please give them an introduction about who you are and what you do. Well, first and foremost, I'm a Bitcoiner, you know, so I'm uh, dedicating my career and my life to elevating Bitcoin and advancing its objectives, you know, which I, I really believe in. And I think it's much deeper than just a monetary protocol. I think it has certain core philosophical values which are embedded in it, which I align with. And uh, we can get into that later. But I think it's an extremely good thing to spend one's career on. And that's what I've decided to do. The actual way that I instrumentalize that is I am a co-founder of a venture firm and a partner at a venture firm called Castle Island Ventures. We're based here in Boston, Massachusetts, and we invest in startups that are building infrastructure and applications in and around Bitcoin and just more generally the public blockchain industry as well, which includes building on stable coins and the like. And uh, so we, we support seed stage startups that are building in particular on the financial services side, because At its core, this is a monetary and financial asset class. I know there are other applications that people believe public blockchains are good for, but to me, they're pri primarily kind of financial phenomenon. Uh, the other thing is that I am the co-founder of a blockchain analytics startup called Coinmetrics, which is dedicated to creating really reliable capital markets data as it relates to the asset class as a whole. So if you wanted to understand the economic throughput of any of these blockchains. That's what you would use Coinmetrics for. And that was built to solve a specific problem I had in business school, which had to do with getting reliable data on the nature of these assets and these monetary protocols, which didn't really exist at the time. And so I built it initially to solve a problem for myself. And then I discovered that lots of other people had that same problem. And now it's a Series A business. I don't actually run it on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, we we secured a CEO to run the business, but it's a post-Series A startup with about 25 employees, so it's doing well. And aside from that, I was Fidelity Investments' first crypto asset analyst. So I was the first dedicated analyst to cover public blockchains and digital assets for them. That was before they'd launched Fidelity Digital Assets. That was back when they were still in their exploration stage. And uh, that's the reason I ended up in Boston, was to take that job. So I had, the, I had the privilege of working for them and helping to educate the senior leadership as they went through their Bitcoin journey. So hopefully, I helped to guide them in the right direction there. And I think Fidelity has been a great asset to Bitcoin and the industry as a whole. So I'm extremely proud to have worked there. Now, of course, there's a lot of employees in their digital assets unit and some extremely talented analysts that are you know, uh, undoubtedly surpassing the work that I did there. But yeah, I'm, I'm very proud to have been an alum of Fidelity. Hopefully I can end up working back there one day. We'll see. Why would you want to work back there when you have your own companies? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, collaborate with them in some capacity. Ah, okay, we'll yeah. Yeah, it seems you did good groundwork there because now they are one of the greatest asset managers. But how did you get into this space in the first place? I mean, what did you, I think you studied philosophy. Yeah, undergrad. Yeah. I mean, my story isn't really that exciting, I would say. I don't know. A lot of people have these really compelling stories about how they, you know, found Bitcoin, you know, so they could you know, I don't know, buy drugs on the Silk Road or something like that, or <laughs> they had they had to get mm -hmm. their assets out of Dodge and Bitcoin was the only way to do it, or... Mm -hmm. they, or their mom was dying and they needed some medicine or something like that. Yeah, yeah I also yeah, don't yeah, I also don't have these stories. <laughs> yeah, my story is very mundane. I mean, I was an avid Redditor, you know, I, I read Slashdot, I just read, I was, you know, read all those tech-related forums and I found it that way. You know, probably 2011, 2012 kind of era. I mean, I didn't take it seriously, though. The first serious thing I did relating to cryptocurrency was I tried my hand at mining Dogecoin in late 2013, I think, early 2014, when I was still at university. 
and uh, managed to melt one of my laptops doing that and you know kind of lost sight of the industry for a while and after mount gox i thought that bitcoin had died and then it was actually in 2015 when bitcoin had failed to die that i took a second look at it that's when i was starting to take finance much more seriously as a career path and i decided i was going to go to business school and and get more of a formal training in finance and uh, that's when i understood that it was actually an asset class and not only that but it was a very important phenomenon you know a, a virtual commodity effectively that exists outside the boundaries of the nation state and you know it, it took me a long time but it was people like chris bermniski and tor demeester that were very influential in my thinking and uh, yeah i but yeah my you know my undergrad was philosophy i studied ethics and epistemology these are concepts that have some intersection with bitcoin obviously no kind of direct overlap but a lot of my writing does center on relating these philosophical concepts which i think are quite useful to bitcoin to help us understand the asset you know what is it what what is it mean to talk about the existence of bitcoin you know what is the substance of bitcoin what does that entail and these are really important questions and i think people don't consider them enough you know i mean what is how could it be said that bitcoin has persistence over time what what differentiates bitcoin from some imposter chain that calls itself bitcoin these are these are pretty tricky questions and so i've i've tried to help elucidate them i don't know if i've succeeded but that's definitely something that i i wonder about a lot mm -hmm. and what's the most important uh, characteristic or property of bitcoin that you have uh, investigated like from the philosophy side that are interesting to you or what what do you think where's the greatest intersection with other sciences or thought schools well That's a great question. I think metaphysics has some useful lessons for Bitcoin, which basically that's just a fancy word for saying the, the study of existence. And Bitcoin is a very troublesome asset from like a ontology perspective, as in, you know, what is the essence of Bitcoin? Because depending on whom you ask, you get a different answer. You know, some people say Bitcoin is the longest chain or the heaviest chain. Other people say it's the asset with the ticker BTC. Some people say it's the asset that Bitcoin Core works on. Some people say it's the UTXO set. Other people say it's the protocol. So there's actually not a lot of consistency in terms of what is Bitcoin. And this has been harmful to Bitcoin in a certain sense because you've had assets which were you know, effectively duplicated the UTXO set and they claimed that common history and lineage. And then they went off in a different direction by changing the protocol and, you know, having a, a fork. And those assets laid claim to the essence of Bitcoin. They not only did they duplicate the UTXO set, but they actually claimed that they were the genuine article. They claimed they were the true thing. And so then the question is, can you devise a rule such that Bitcoin, the Bitcoin we consider Bitcoin, is the original Bitcoin, and these other assets are not. And that's actually a much more troublesome task than some people would think, because any rule that is sufficiently stringent, it has the potential of actually having the consequence that Bitcoin itself is not considered the original. Uh, so you have to design a rule that's kind of flexible enough to accommodate the changes in Bitcoin itself, because Bitcoin has changed a lot. You know, the composition of the developers has changed. The nodes that constitute the network, they've changed, of course. We've had hard forks historically in response to bugs. You know, the UTXO set is obviously changing all the time. The software that we use to access the network That has changed as well. The miners that you know construct the blocks, those are constantly changing and depreciating you know, the actual machines. So you have to design a rule that's fairly flexible, but still takes note of the fact that it's important to resist fragmentation and to 
retain this unity, you know, this this property of of there only being one Bitcoin. Because you don't want to design a rule such that any network could copy paste some features of Bitcoin and then genuinely claim affiliation. So it's after puzzling over that that I would say the best answer is probably a kind of a hybrid where we look at some of the things that give Bitcoin continuity. And this actually has lots of intersections with with discussions of consciousness, I would say, because and and that was the first way I looked at it. How could you say that a person has has is the same person that they were a year ago if they're you know, if their body is changing and maybe their cells and their actual atomic composition is constantly changing and their their memories uh, are being updated, you know, and their they're even their composition of their conception of their self is changing. You know, if if I were to ask you to describe yourself, you know, what your personality is today, that might be a very different answer than what you gave me a year ago. So I think that notion of personhood and identity over time, you can borrow some of those concepts and try and devise a test that that yields you know a stable conception of what Bitcoin is. And to me, for Bitcoin, that would probably be something like, well, we're going to look at the stability of the core values undergirding the protocol, and we have to effectively ascertain what they were because they weren't really made that explicit by Satoshi and then try and find some other ways to track the persistence of the protocol, whether it's the rules itself, the protocol or the UTXO set. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's an enormous challenge and it's also something that service providers have to worry about. I mean, if you ask major exchanges and custodians, they will have a, a fork choice rule or a a fork legitimacy set of rules to ascertain which is the genuine Bitcoin in case there's another fork. So this isn't just a completely navel-gazing philosophical discussion. It's actually something that's incredibly pragmatic. It has a real-world purpose to it. So it's questions like that that kind of fascinate me. Mm, I'm also fascinated about that. And you just said the set of values, it's what I understood or what I think of myself when I think about how my perception of my own identity has changed in the last like decades in a way. But I still, I think I have a basic set of values, you know, that I follow or that I leave my, lead my life upon. And I, when people ask me, what are the values of Bitcoin? Yeah, I always say, well, I think you can uh, decide upon another cryptocurrency if you like agree with it or not, or want to buy it or whatever. If you compare it to the basic values or principles of Bitcoin, like being uncensorable, transparent, open, non-inflatable, and all those things. That would be like my my own set of values for my life. Is this something we can use to compare that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Although our, I, th- I would say the distinction is that the things we believe in as humans can change, and society would consider us to, you know, have that persistence, be effectively be the same person. Whereas a point I've tried to make recently is that the system specified by Satoshi and that was baptized with the name Bitcoin, that's a actually a fairly specific set of traits and values that were assembled into a whole. And some of those values are kind of statutory or, or sort of constitutional and can't really be changed too much without creating a new system. And the analogy I would cast would be a kind of a constitutional one, you know. So the United States is a federal republic where, you know, individuals can vote to elect representatives and senators, and we have a judiciary and an executive branch and legislative branch, and then you've got a bunch of states that themselves have certain powers. And to a certain degree, that arrangement of powers can be malleable and it can change, you know, so we've had new additions to the states and 
the judiciary and the legislature and the executive have hashed out their power over the years and they've kind of that's changed the balance of power has changed a little bit but some of the very core features are also static you know the fact that there's a bill of rights and so individuals and states have rights that are meant to be kind of unimpeachable that the federal government can't necessarily you know kind of abrogate those rights and so i would say similarly there are certain absolutely core values that are embedded into the bitcoin system that are also unimpeachable and if you were to change them and you might still call it bitcoin but it would be a different system the same way that if you said okay there's no more states there's just uh, a solely uh, federal republic here and also we don't have voting anymore and you know we're abolishing the judiciary you know that would just be a different system you know whoever would be in charge at that point might still call it the united states but that name would be empty because the the core features of the system that define the system wouldn't be present so the same with bitcoin if for instance the digital scarcity element of bitcoin was suddenly no longer present i would say that's actually not really bitcoin uh, maybe it's a useful system maybe it's a great system who knows but i would say that's something totally distinct. So I think you can only kind of stretch the boundaries of what Bitcoin is so far before you you break it and uh, and you know we have to acknowledge that okay this is something new. And that's not to say that you know this system can't change. It's definitely changed a lot. But it can only change in some respects and not in others if we are to, to consider it Bitcoin. And that's kind of a controversial view I'd say, you know, a lot of people out there think well actually you know if if it comes down to it we can you know bust the 21 million cap or something like that or we can change the the commitment to property rights in the system to make them slightly weaker if we have to and it would be important for us to still be able to call that bitcoin and that's kind of a very pragmatic view but i would say i pretty much disagree with that i think it's important to enumerate these very fundamental values, uh, because that's the thing that actually gives Bitcoin persistence. And that's one of the hardest things to do is to take an unowned, largely ungoverned system, which is built by millions of people worldwide, and give it a notion of persistence. And that's actually something that's incredibly special, that it hasn't fragmented hopelessly. And it's it's persistence over time, despite the fact that there's no leadership, that completely differentiates it from every other cryptocurrency out there. There's no other successful example of that, in my opinion. And that's something that's very underrated. I guess one reason for that strength is that so many people are on the same page. Uh, I mean, they uh, got into Bitcoin and I have the feeling that that most of us Bitcoiners are on the same page regarding privacy, uncensorability, free speech, and these things. And all of us maintain this kind of Bitcoin how it is because there has to be a consensus on it. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it's hard to... Sometimes I meet people that like Bitcoin but don't seem to value the properties that Bitcoin gives them. And I kind of wonder, why are they even interested in Bitcoin? It's, it seems like a like just a fashionable thing to them. But the whole point of Bitcoin, I like the way Hasu puts it, is to create an independent system of property rights that's not dependent on any legal or political you know, construct. And I mean, you could you could consider Bitcoin's protocol its own kind of internally consistent legal system that governs behavior in a very narrow context with respect to moving monetary units around and in 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 countries with functioning legal systems and respect for property rights bitcoin is seen as irrelevant it's like okay why do you need this we have our own very functional financial system and legal system and the state kind of takes care of everything and disputes can be settled through police and the courts and so on. So that's why, you know, many Westerners think Bitcoin is 
just this complete folly, this this irrelevance. But then again, it's all contextual. As you know, there's lots of countries with completely, you know, indifferent legal systems that don't sanction or protect the rights of the individual and even corrupt judicial or political systems that are completely arbitrary. And relative to those settings, Bitcoin is far superior because even its narrow domain where it delineates a very small set of things you can do, the individual's rights are protected or they're protected in in a different way. You know, whoever has knowledge of the key is the owner effectively. And so depending on the context, Bitcoin seems completely surplus to requirements and completely irrelevant or incredibly potent and incredibly useful in terms of protecting the rights of the individual. So it's, it, yeah, there's a, there's kind of a, I would say like a Bitcoin skepticism is often couched in this like Anglo centric view of the world where people couldn't conceive of a situation where property rights aren't respected at all. Hmm. Yeah, I also see that here in the German-speaking world that people don't really understand why we would need something like Bitcoin. And they uh, always, or very often, and that's also how the media frames it or the politic, uh, politicians frame it, that it's only for criminals and terrorists. My goal is to educate as many people as possible about Bitcoin. If you like what I do, please contribute and support my work with a monthly subscription. You will get bonus content, early access and ad-free podcast episodes. If you prefer, you can also donate Bitcoin or Lightning. Visit anita.link forward slash p for more information. If you can't afford or have other priorities, I understand. You can also support the show. For instance, Write a recommendation on Apple Podcasts. You can do that even if you do not have an iPhone. Go to Apple Podcasts, search for Anita Posh, scroll down to Reviews, click on Write a Review and write a few words. That's it. Thank you. As we know, just uh, like today, there are the, the, the FinCEN files have been leaked. And those show again that big banks like HSBC, JP Morgan, Deutsche Bank and others moved money from for, for organized crime terrorists and drug traffickers. And interestingly, also money from OneCoin and Russia Ignatova mm-hmm. uh, appeared in the FinCEN files. So... Today, Andreas Antonopoulos commented on that and said that's not really a good thing for Bitcoin because authorities will even more make it harder or, or build tighter regulations using more surveillance and control methods upon money. And that will, of course, include cryptocurrencies. Sometimes I feel a little bit, how shall I say, pessimistic about all of this, and I hope that it will play out that way that we can still use cryptocurrencies in a private way. What's your take on that or your view for the future? Yeah, this is the existential question, really. If you're a participant in the crypto industry, you know, crypto means hidden. And fundamentally, that's what we're trying to accomplish here. We're trying to restore the notion of of cash, but in a digital context, and restore the assurances that you get transacting with cash, what includes not producing metadata, not informing any third party of what you're doing for that transaction, and having full discretion and full autonomy over the nature of that transaction. And it's still a work in progress. I mean, the cypherpunks were obsessed with fully anonymous payment systems. I mean, DigiCash arguably had better privacy protections than Bitcoin does. So, and if you look back at the mailing list, it's all privacy, privacy, privacy. And then Bitcoin, it was kind of a worse is better technology where Satoshi had to make some compromises around privacy in order for the system to work. And it would have been probably too difficult to 
include something confidential transactions in Bitcoin and day one, the data overhead would have been too big. And we kind of needed that auditability, that transparency in order to have confidence in the integrity of the money supply. So there's kind of a lot of really good practical reasons why Bitcoin could only be pseudonymous and not kind of fully confidential. So it's still a work in progress. And I think I'm actually quite optimistic over the potential to create uh, sort of fully confidential stable coins, you know, that would effectively mirror uh, digital cash or cash in a digital context. So I'm optimistic about the scope for innovation there and obviously to create more privacy preserving ways to transact on Bitcoin. But that's the central conceit of the industry is autonomous and private transactions. And I think if you are sincere and you're in this industry for the right reasons, you acknowledge that. And you also acknowledge that this is something that's kind of fundamentally at odds with the objectives of the modern state, which seeks to surveil uh, virtually everything. You know, the, the state has never met a surveillance power it didn't like. And its scope and its dragnet grows inexorably. It, it doesn't ever shrink, right? The domain of, of life that the state seeks to have insight into always grows. And I think financial surveillance is the best example of that. In, you know, prior to 1970, you could really transact with cash in this, in the US at least, without too much oversight and without disclosure. And those transactions were final and an arbitrary size, and it was great. Then, of course, we had the Bank Secrecy Act, where, and there's a case, um, I think it was called the Miller case in 1976, which added to that, which basically formalized the idea that my transactions within a bank are surveillable by the government without a subpoena. So my financial information that's held within a bank, and this is called the third party doctrine, those are surveillable by the state. And then the other thing that happened is that those cash transactions were kind of increasingly marginalized and your reporting requirements steadily grew. Um, this is something Bitcoiners talk about a lot. That $10,000 threshold for a cash transaction report where you basically have to report that you are making a cash transaction or a deposit, that was never indexed to inflation. So that threshold got lower and lower in real terms as the dollar became worth less and less. So the the combination of all those things, and obviously as transactions became more electronic in nature, meant that financial activity became uh, completely surveilled within the US. Now, if you look at the if you look at organizations like the FATF, you know, the Financial Action Task Force that is kind of a transnational organization dedicated to surveilling or developing guidelines on counter-terrorist financing and, and global guidelines on, on, on AML um, and KYC. This is effectively there and FinCEN as well. FinCEN was created in the early nineties. I think FATF was created around that time, maybe in the late eighties, early nineties. I don't think it's a coincidence that these organizations and this objective of the United States as the global hegemon, it's not a coincidence that they were created after the Soviet Union fell or just as the Soviet Union was falling. Because if you remember the kind of triumphalism in the US at that time, I mean, I wasn't alive exactly, but from what I understand, there was this view that, you know, the end of history had been reached and liberal democracy uh, as guided by the US and its stewardship of the Bretton Woods organizations was supreme and wouldn't be challenged. And the world had gone from a, a bipolar world with the Soviet Union being the other center of power to a unipolar world with the US as the sole hegemon, you know, a superpower in the truest sense of the world. And then the electronification of the world and the digitization of transactions, those two things together combined to make regulators think that for the first time, they could not only have full surveillance ability into kind of global network of transactions, but at that point, they realized that the dollar was powering virtually all commerce globally, and they could create a surveillance apparatus 
which penetrated those entire global financial markets. And they could create standards, which every single bank in every single country on earth, if they wanted to be part of that US dominated financial system, those standards would, would adhere. Those banks would have to adhere to them. And the threat would be that they, those banks would be excluded from the kind of New York-based correspondent banking system. They'd be excluded from SWIFT. And that's basically a death knell for foreign banks. And f- over the last 30 years, this has been the default. This has been how it's worked. So I think the timing, you have to look at it in context. We, we're talking about the total ascendancy the apotheosis of U.S. power and this kind of Washington consensus or this theory that international organizations stewarded by the United States, you know, would would create a, a single kind of unified regime, both of of political projection of power from organizations like the UN and then trade organizations like the WTO, but then also you know, all unified by the financial system, the dollar-based financial system, which, you know, was stewarded by these organizations that the U.S. effectively controlled. And so, I know this is a very long-winded answer, but, you know, I, I think that the point is that, that that American policymakers saw the opportunity to impose a homogenous surveillance regime and I think this is actually where the opportunity lies because anyone now, and, and now, you know, sanctions are the primary weapon of war, right? As opposed to actual warfare. And that's because of this tight grip that the US holds o- over, you know, the banking system. And they can even threaten China. And it's a very credible threat with sanctions. Um, even their, US, their allies now are, are, you know, starting to think, okay, this this regime isn't working for us. Uh, we don't love the fact that it's there's effectively one node in the network and they control everything. And so, I think the patience for the international orders for this really enormous financial surveillance dragnet is wearing thin, especially as with the FinCEN leaks recently, we've seen that it's not really that effective, and it's just a a pretext for collecting as much data as possible. It's not really aimed at, you know, reducing terrorist activity. You know, the proof is in the pudding. It's it's not very successful there. So I think, you know, it's it's possible that the pendulum is going to swing the other way soon, and uh, there's going to be defections from the system. That's already, you know, Russia and China are already aggressively trying to defect. But even, you know, our ostensive allies in Europe are saying. Hmm, you know, we don't really necessarily agree with this. Maybe we want to trade with Iran. Maybe we're going to try and route around U.S. sanctions to trade with Iran. So the long and short of it is, I think the system is fraying at the edges. That's clear to everyone. And I think, you know, the the surveillance overreach is probably gonna it's gonna have these effects soon, where people start to defect from the system, and and the U.S. realizes it, it probably has less power to impose such a regime than it did maybe in the early 90s. The thought of being able to control illicit ex- activities or people who do that through financial surveillance, do you think this will not be also used in, in Europe or in other countries? Because uh, I have the feeling that, I don't know, do, do people outside the Bitcoin privacy small bubble think about privacy in any case? Because why do all those people build this stuff and and say yes to it in a way, you know? Don't they see what they are building here? I mean, most people also say, I have nothing to hide. So... Yeah, I mean, most people, I think, when given the choice between convenience and privacy, always choose convenience. Yeah. Um, but I think, and, and I agree, most countries are doubling down on their commitment to surveillance, and that's not going to change. I think the important thing is, though, that this regime where everyone had to adhere to the U.S.'s standard of financial surveillance, that might not be, that might not last forever. And in theory, you could have nations which are defector nations, maybe in the Caribbean, maybe tax havens, which regain their autonomy and in a free market system, they can offer financial services to individuals which are more privacy preserving, you know, which 
that that's been kind of heavily discouraged. And if you were a marginal nation or a tax haven, you'd have a very real chance of ending up on the fat of uh, gray list or blacklist. So, you know, I think that's kind of what I was alluding to. Maybe there's going to be more of a free market for for more private kind of financial services in the future. Mm-hmm. I think this is also something you stated in the crypto dollars paper you and your partner uh, from Castle Island wrote. Can you explain something to me, please? <laughs> I read the paper and I understand that uh, crypto dollars are basically stable coins. And they are backed by different kind of currencies. On the one hand, you have them backed by fiat currencies like the US dollars, because the advantage would be that there's no, not so such a high volatility as in Bitcoin, for instance. But then there are also crypto dollars backed by Bitcoin or Ethereum. And then I don't understand how they can, are more stable than Ethereum or, or Bitcoin. Yeah, so it's effectively to in that latter case to achieve that stability, you're transforming the risk profile, but you have to pay for that. And the way you pay for it is by introducing capital inefficiency. The way it works for uh, MakerDAI, which is the the biggest of all of those crypto backed stable coins, is to uh, create one dollars worth of Dai, you have to immobilize at least a dollar is worth of ethereum and the theory is that based on ethereum's historical volatility and the natural risk management of the system that it's unlikely you'd see enough downside volatility that that system would become insolvent so you're you're baking in estimates over your view of ethereum's riskiness relative to the dollar uh, but so yeah i mean that, that's kind of like the fundamental business of finance is is transforming risk into a different flavor of risk. But the problem with that system is that it's much less capital efficient than simply taking a dollar and producing a, a tokenized dollar, which is the way that Tether or USDC works, which is why those fiat-backed stable coins are way more popular than the crypto-backed ones. As far as I understand, one reason why Tether, for instance, or other uh, stable coins are used is not only the, the, the less volatility or the stability, but also the ease of use. But I don't quite understand why is it easier to use Tether than, for instance, Bitcoin? Well, from a UX perspective, it's about the same, right? I mean, it's we're talking about digital bearer assets and it's all the challenges that accompany that from a me- mechanical perspective but i would say people have a hard time entertaining multiple different units of account in their heads at the same time i mean you know i roughly know what a dollar is worth relative to goods and services and then i know what a bitcoin's worth but that bitcoin i know what it's worth relative to dollars i don't really keep track of what a bitcoin is worth relative to men's suits or a pound of beef or anything that's probably about the most I can manage. And uh, I might know what a, a, a pound sterling is worth too. But I think, you know, the reason people prefer stable coins, and actually, if you look at the velocity of stable coins, it's much higher than native crypto assets like Bitcoin or Ethereum. They prefer them because they're all already familiar with dollars. And uh, the constituency of people that know what a dollar is worth is much bigger than the people that are willing to do the work to kind of you know 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 what a bitcoin is worth from a kind of commercial sense so i think it's really that it's just that mental friction of introducing new units of account but i don't think you know i think in the long term stable coins are going to be issued against bitcoin that's going to be a very popular way to issue them because it's very fragile and kind of risky to issue them against dollars and bank accounts i think that might be more of a short term phenomenon i don't think that's going to last forever or at the very least, there'll be a reckoning there and and we'll see who wins. But my guess is that similar to the way that DAI operates with Ethereum, people will devise sophisticated ways to create dollar-denominated risk out of Bitcoin, treating Bitcoin as a reserve, and then creating this alternative note on top of that Bitcoin uh, to transact with. And to a certain extent, we're already seeing some early exper- experiments there. So it's actually pretty exciting i think to see this this kind of multi-layered 
system of unit of accounts developing. Stablecoins most of the time have a central issuer, as far as I understand. So what if the, the regulators step in? I mean, they are not so uncensorable like Bitcoin. Yeah, that's correct. And and that's why the different models really matter. So the that's why I alluded to the fact that the fiat-backed stablecoins are more fragile because those issuers, ultimately, it's the issuers and then it's really the banks that are custodying the dollars. And with um, the onshore ones, like onshore, I mean, based in the US financial system, like USDC or Trust Token uh, or Paxos, those are actually in, in U.S. banks, and then they're issuing tokens against those those dollars in the banks. That's obviously completely, you know, trivially uh, regulatable, and and we'll see what happens there because it, it's interesting. A lot of these stable coins are freely circulating in the crypto economy in a way that regulators would find unacceptable for fintech companies like PayPal, for instance. So they have much looser standards than uh, normal fintech companies have. So I think there's probably going to be some sort of come to Jesus moment at some point when regulators realize that. So we'll see. And then Tether is kind of slightly less accountable to US financial regulators, although they're trying to get them. Because the banks issuing Tether are all offshore banks, it's not exactly clear what banks, apparently there's a network of offshore banks where the actual dollars backing Tether are held. And those are more difficult to get access to. But again, those banks are still part of the US-based correspondent banking system. And so there exist levers that regulators can pull if they really want to get access to them. And already the New York Attorney General, and it's no coincidence this is New York, New York Attorney General is going after Tether and trying to bring them to heel. The reason the New York Attorney General cares about Tether, even though there's basically no New Yorkers that were affected by Tether, and Tether has kind of worked just fine for its whole history, so there's very limited cause of action there. The New York Attorney General cares because they have this monopoly on dollar clearing. There's something like 11 banks that are all based in the state of New York that are that global clearinghouse for dollars and every other bank ultimately has to transact with them you know and sometimes through various you know layers of separation but it's it's new york where dollars ultimately clear and tether represent and bitfinex really represents an alternative dollar clearinghouse that's a node completely outside of new york so they object to the creation of a new node which routes against them so that's their motivation for going after them. But just to finish the thought there, the stablecoins that are issued against native crypto collateral in a kind of programmatic way, they're much harder to interfere with because the only thing that's happening there is that users interact with smart contracts where they lock up certain crypto collateral and they produce IOU against that collateral. But that's a kind of bottom-up thing. Uh, that users do independently, and that's much, much harder to regulate. And so it's that category of stablecoins that I'm much more optimistic about. The ones that are are being issued against liability-free collateral, dollars in bank accounts are someone's liability. They're liabilities of the banking system, and the bank in theory could fail. And, you know, obviously there's like deposit insurance and so on, but they're ultimately a liability of the banking system. Whereas Bitcoin is no one's liability, there's no one that guarantees the value of that Bitcoin. People say that's a weakness. That's actually a strength. That means there's no situation where the backer of that Bitcoin could withdraw their backing. The backing of Bitcoin comes from the fact that the market has this uh, collective view that Bitcoin is worth whatever it's worth, $10,000. I don't know exactly what the price is today. And so because that would put Bitcoin in the category of liability-free collateral, which is similar to gold or another monetary commodity. Now, this isn't new to you, but it really matters in this situation because now we have stable coins that are issued against uh, collateral, which can't be undermined for any reason, aside from just the market changing its mind about the price. And that's the strongest way to create uh, a crypto dollar. That kind of is reminiscent of the free banking era where you, and we talked about this in the paper, 
where you had banks that were issuing notes against gold held in reserve. They weren't issuing notes against, you know, government guarantee or, you know, their their soundness as a bank. They're issuing notes against gold itself because gold was a truly liability-free collateral. And so this is just the modern equivalent of that. Mm-hmm. And as far as I understand, back then, the money supply was not controlled by the government, or and it still worked. Yeah, so the, the free banking system I'm alluding to is, the, in particular, the Scottish experience in the, in the 19th century and, and parts of the 18th century. And in that case, the, the money supply, as you say, it was, uh, money was privately issued by banks that weren't really accountable to a central bank. And the system was exceptionally stable. There were very few bank failures. The banks themselves were fractional reserve. So the you know, Rothbardians may not like this, but the, the banks issued notes on fractional reserve. But it was stable because it was a competitive system. And if one bank felt that their competitor was over-issuing notes, they could have a speculative attack on that bank where they bought up all the notes and they redeemed them for gold immediately all at once. And if those notes, if they didn't have enough reserves, the, the bank that was conducting the attack was kind of getting a good deal on redeeming those notes for gold, right? So that was, you know, there were market mechanisms that kept banks in check and kept them from over-issuing. And uh, it was kind of a moderately deflationary period. It was a period of significant economic growth in Scotland. There there was no need for uh, federal deposit insurance or anything like that because the market kind of regulated activity nicely. And uh, there have actually been other periods of free banking, but that's the one that's best documented. So I'd encourage Bitcoiners to look into that historical epoch because I think where we're going is something somewhat akin to that. I think that's probably a good model for the direction this industry is going. Although this time on a global scale and in a digital context, which means that it's much more scalable and those trust signals aren't just limited to local geographies, you know, to a few hundred square miles. Now you have crypto banks, which are global by nature. They have credibility. They have crypto reserves. The next step would be potentially to issue notes against those reserves in a transparent manner, which you can do with cryptocurrency because it is uh, natively auditable. So I think that's one potential direction for the industry is the reprivatization of the issuance of money, this time against Bitcoin as opposed to uh, as opposed to gold, which is you know still a great asset, but it's not natively auditable and it's not you know digitally portable either. I think I can I can remember that Scottish banknotes are not issued by the central banks. That's correct. Yeah. So the banks that issue Scottish notes are uh, Clydesdale, RBS, and hmm. Bank of Scotland. Bank of Scotland. I have the, yeah. I, I just googled it, the Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, Bank of but I remembered it because when I learned about uh, Bitcoin and blockchains and why we believe in money or that money has value, they also you also learn about what is legal tender, and so the Scottish banknotes are technically not legal tender so and, yeah. and still they work people use it <laughs> and, and uh, you wouldn't believe how many issues you have so i went to school in scotland undergrad and grad and uh, i would get these bank issued notes and then in theory they were redeemable for british pounds because they're all they all track the same unit of account right because uh, now they're effectively just a wrapper for pound sterling but you'd go to spend them in england and there would always be disagreements, you know, shops didn't want to take them. And sometimes you'd hear, you know, an aggrieved Scotsman trying to convince the English shopkeeper that his notes were valid. But yeah, it is a it's kind of a vestige now because of course it's all just wrapper for mm-hmm. British English central bank money. But it is a reminder that there was a time when until 1844 when when Scottish money was issued by the banks and not by the central bank. Hmm. Interesting. And also because you mentioned banks or the potential of crypto banks in the future, there's a big news last week. Kraken was uh, did get the 
like approval to be the world's first special purpose depository institution from the state of Wyoming. And I heard you talk about this and that you're very positive or bullish on that. Can you explain what is so special about this? Yeah. And, you know, actually, if you look overseas, there are already situations where banks have had the legal formal right to hold cryptocurrency, including Bitcoin. And the relationship between depositors and those institutions has been formalized. So actually in Germany, I think there have been some recent developments there. Uh, in Switzerland, there are already some banks which can hold Bitcoin. I believe Singapore is already progressive there. So world's first is maybe like slightly a stretch, but this is uh, a really important development in the US for a couple of reasons. So first of all, the SPDI is new legislation in Wyoming, which is only about a year old. And it's really thanks to the efforts of people like Caitlin Long, who's an amazing advocate for the industry. And she went, she was part of this kind of committee on banking and convinced the Wyoming legislators that they could make a name for themselves by really clarifying the legal nature of of Bitcoin and digital assets, in particular in a custodial setting, which is actually, believe it or not, really not clear in the US at present. Most exchanges and custodians are actually regulated on a state-by-state basis. It's a patchwork, and the states regulate them in their capacity as money transmitters. They're not really looking at whether they are responsible custodial organizations. But exchanges are more like banks than they are like remittance companies, right? So there's an enormous challenge, which is hashing out the rights of depositors and the obligations of those custodians relative to those depositors, especially in you know liquidation or really messy situations where it's not clear that the Bitcoins held on deposit are actually the property and and the legal entitlement of the depositors. So you can imagine a situation where an exchange uh, becomes insolvent for whatever reason, maybe not even because they lost their coins and creditors have a claim on the assets of that business. And if, if they hadn't clarified their terms of service, those creditors could plausibly say, our right, our claim is senior to that of the depositors and we want to be paid off first. We want to be paid off before the depositors. And uh, that's kind of what we saw in Mt. Gox and likely what we're going to see in other situations like Cryptopia. So it, this isn't uh, unprecedented. You know, There are lots of situations where depositors are at the bottom of the totem pole, so to speak. And so what Wyoming said was, we're going to change this. So if you are going to get a bank charter under our system... You have to clarify, you have to include bailment effectively. So bailment means that a third party takes custody of your assets, but they don't have ownership of them. So custody without ownership. And to me, that's basically the proper way that uh, these exchanges should be regulated. I know lots of Bitcoiners say we shouldn't have regulation, but if you're undertaking a custodial arrangement, I think there should be some legal kind of framework that depositors can use to know if they're empowered relative to the exchange, where do they stand, basically. And so it's been about 11 years now since Bitcoin was created, but this this legal arrangement hasn't really been formalized in the US to date. And so this is the first really crystal clear instance where a state regulator has said, okay, we're using this legal framework which takes into account the true nature of Bitcoin and what it is as a digital asset, and we're going to regulate exchanges and custodians accordingly. Now, obviously, there are other states like New York, which have written uh, legislation relating to custody of digital assets, but it wasn't really done in a crypto-native way. And I mean, even the Wyoming law talks about the potential for exchanges to prove their reserves uh, using cryptographic methods, which is pretty amazing and and very progressive. So that's one important thing is that it formalizes this relationship between depositors and exchanges. And uh, Kraken, led by my former colleague, um, David Konitsky, who I worked with at Fidelity, 
He runs Kraken Financial. They were the first to get it. So I'm really excited for them. Now, the important thing to understand is that it's a full reserve bank. It's not uh, fractional. So full reserve both for dollars and for crypto assets, for digital assets. So what this means is they don't necessarily need federal deposit insurance, FDIC. And this is very important as well, because the FDIC, together with the Department of Justice, was the way that previous administrations have cracked down on industries they don't like through the nexus of banking. So some Americans will be familiar with this thing called Operation Choke Point, whereby this is actually, I believe, in 2013, the Obama administration, they basically informally, through the FDIC, advised banks that they would be unbanked or that they would uh, lose their deposit insurance if they kept doing business with certain marginal industries. Now, these weren't illegal or black market industries. They were just industries that the administration didn't like. So uh, firearms, manufacturing, and payday lending. I mean, you know, I'm not a fan of payday lending, but the point here is that the administration extrajudicially exerted their influence on whole industries through the vector of banks, specifically because banks are beholden to the federal government through deposit insurance through the FDIC. And now, if you have a full reserve bank, you don't need deposit insurance because you can't default, right? So if you have a kind of Rothbardian full reserve bank, you're exempt from that. And that's exactly the case with the Wyoming SPDI. So they, it's a way of the states to, and Wyoming was targeted through Operation Choke Point. A lot of those banks that were pressured were uh, in Wyoming, and a lot of those businesses were in Wyoming. So the deeper significance here is that this is a riposte from the state of Wyoming to the federal government saying, we're reasserting our federal right. We're going to create a new way to create bank charters, which the it's virtually impossible to get a federal bank charter these days. It never happens. The number of banks is shrinking rapidly. So they're reopening the kind of free market of banks, and they're doing it in a way that says that they're going to be much more independent from the federal government. So not only is it amazing in terms of clarifying a really muddy legal question we've had in the industry for a long time, but it's actually an expression of political freedom from the federal government, which has massively abused the trust that we put in it through FDIC for political purposes in the past, which is why it's so exciting to me. And it's, I think, also, I guess, an example for following crypto banks. And as far as I understand, I mean, Caitlin Long has a, and all the other people that were doing this have a, a great knowledge about how Bitcoin works and how cryptocurrencies work about hard forks and all those stuff. And I think it's important to have a framework for these for the future. Yeah, and, and the regulators in Wyoming have been spending a lot of time learning about these things. And now we have a senator who's most likely going to be elected in the fall, Cynthia Loomis uh, in Wyoming. She's a Bitcoiner. She's been a Bitcoiner since 2013. So I think it's very important for our representatives to be aligned with the cause. And it seems to me that the representatives that speak positively about Bitcoin are growing, whereas I mean, there's still a, a small constituency, but they're growing steadily. And I'm not relying on that to, you know, bail us out or, you know, I don't expect the US to flip to being a super Bitcoin friendly place. But the existence of enclaves like Wyoming that are clearly aligned with the cause is incredibly useful. And it also shows the strength and the clout that we wield as an industry now. So it's so interesting. I could talk with you endlessly, but we have to stop now. Thanks for this. And I have one or two last questions. One is a more general question. It's a, a question I stole from Tim Ferriss's podcast. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, what is something that you would like the world to know? Like, what would you put on an ad? that is published on all social media platforms. Uh, a short message for everybody to see. What would you like the world to know? Oh, you know, I mean, this interview, it, it kind of covers that, but because these are the things I care the most about, right? 
But what I would say is something like, you know, our financial infrastructure is politicized from top to bottom, from the very local level to the banking level, to the state level, to the national level and the transnational level. The entire thing is politicized. But nobody should have their right to financial infrastructure withdrawn based on who they are or the political views that they hold, although that is the default today. And I don't know if this is a fact or kind of a normative message, but I think that needs to change, and I, I believe it is going to change. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Please tell our listeners where they can find you and follow your work. Well, I made a personal website recently. So that's nickcarter.info. That's N-I-C, carter.info. And uh, you can find all of my writing there, maybe with the exception of the pieces that I wrote that I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> But so that's the number one. If you want the full Nick Carter archive, which I don't know if anybody actually wants that besides me. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, think <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, on Twitter, Nick underscore underscore Carter. That's two underscores. Pretty much there. I think I, I looked at the stats recently. I've tweeted something like 20 times a day for the last five years. So it's really, really more of an addiction at this point. But yeah, you can pretty much find me on there. My DMs are always open, by the way. So yeah. I try and answer every DM that's not something totally crazy. So feel free to hit me up in the DMs. Okay, great. Thank you very much. I will put your link in the show notes. And also for our listeners, I made an interview with Caitlin Long. It's number 14 on the Bitcoin and Co podcast. Okay. Thank you very much, Nick. It was a pleasure to have you on. And I hope that uh, maybe next year we can meet in person. That would be great. Anita, thank yeah. you so much. Big fan of the show. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for today. If you like my show, please share it with your friends and hit the subscribe button in your podcast player now. Thanks to my sponsors who make it possible that I can produce the show. Localbitcoins.com, Shift Crypto with the Bitbox O2 and Coinfinity with their card wallet. Music. Start with yes, delicate beats. Idea, content and production. Yours truly, Anita Posh. 